This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, November 5th, 2020 edition of Invest Talk. And uh, this is the first show that I am hosting post election day. And still, there's not a decisive victor yet as of this recording. There's four states still up for grabs. And as you know, I like to look at the betting odds. Because uh, that tends to be a good barometer as opposed to opinion. It's where money is flowing. And three out of those four states, currently, Biden has the betting odds lead, meaning Trump kind of has to hit a four team parlay in the betting world where uh, three of those bets are on teams that are underdogs, right? So it looks like for the Democrats that Biden will get the White House. However, with the fact that not only did the Republicans gain some seats in this in the House, which isn't that significant, what well, more significant is they retain the majority in the Senate. Most likely, there's still an outside chance that uh, you go into uh, two runoffs in Georgia potentially, and going into that with a 50-48 lead in, in favor of the Republicans, meaning that they would only need to win one of those Georgia seats to maintain a lead in the House. But potentially, still could get to that 50-50, which with a Biden White House, the vice president has the swing vote, and then it would be a unified government. However, that is very unlikely. That is very unlikely. It's likely to be a split government, which means to me, and I talked about this a little bit, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday, that this is not only the, mo- the most unlikely outcome that most analysts were expecting, right? Most analysts were expecting a blue wave, and if it wasn't a Biden win, that means that there's huge turnout for the Republicans, and that they would not only hold the, the White House, but also uh, the, the Senate, and in fact, neither of that happened, right? Biden won, but it wasn't big enough to hold this or take over the Senate. And therefore, you had a divided government, which means less stimulus, most likely, right? More back about government spending. We've said this before. It's more difficult for the powers that be, the institutions that influence the economy the most, which is the Fed and Congress, Right? One lends the Fed, the other spends Congress. The Fed is out of bullets, right? This is actually Fed Day. I don't know if anyone knew that, but this was Fed Day. Fed came out, no change, still going to do QE, monetize the debt, etc. But what's most important, what what the market is looking for is stimulus. So that's a big question here, and that's still up in the air. We might not know an answer to it till mid January. And I believe the Georgia runoffs would be sometime in early January. And so there's still a lot to be decided when it comes to how government's going to look, how, and thus stimulus, right? Infrastructure stimulus. And this is the way I look at it. They're still likely to be stimulus. Doesn't mean the government's not going to spend. They have to. They know they need to. It'll just be more difficult. You're going to have 
fiscal hawks kind of wake up after four years and start to push back on uh, the the spending and the types of spending. And they're going to be less green spending in my eyes. Not that there's going to be none, but there's going to be less and more brick and mortar, uh, building roads, bridges, etc. I think that is more likely. Okay. So a very fluid situation between now and Inauguration Day. Especially when it comes to who, who's Biden's cabinet, right? Who will he appoint? What are their priorities? And how will that shape policy going forward? I think that's going to be very, very interesting and very, uh, very telling who those, uh, who those people in the cabinet are. Now, let's take a look at the market today. You had the S&P, nice solid up day, about 2%, 67 points, back to close to the highs from the peak in September, as well as October. The NASDAQ as well, that surging. You saw interest rates fall yesterday. A lot of that had to do with the expectation, once again, that the Fed is going to have to do more because Congress is going to do less. It's what a divided government brings you typically. Less action because they can't agree on stuff, right? Especially in our hyper-partisan world. NASDAQ back to the highs from September and mid-October. So very choppy market over the past couple of months. You're seeing volatility fall as there's at least more certainty about the outcome, even though it seems uncertain. Uh, The market knows that it's very unlikely for Trump to retain the presidency, even though he's going to sue, he's going to make a big fuss, uh, when it comes to legal proceedings, there may be recounts, there may be some discrepancies, but overall, the results are likely to stick with Biden winning, but the Senate hold, being held by the Republicans. So that's the, been the market reaction. A lot of unwind trades as well, right? There, I talked about before, the market was positioning for that blue wave. It did not get it. So when the market is positioning for a particular outcome, they don't get it, those trades tend to get unwound. And just like in earnings, right? When you price in a certain amount of earnings and you miss those earnings, the the earnings aren't quite what you expected, typically the stock sells off or vice versa. In this case, it was falling going into the election and you had an unwind there. And the shift from from growth to value turned around the last couple of days. So will that stick, I think, is a really big question that I'll be watching over the coming couple of weeks. No, I'm Justin Klein, and today on this program and podcast, I'm going to do my best to provide you with unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions. My goal is to help you develop strategies to deal with the volatility of the markets, find the best values, and protect your portfolio. So I'm here ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. I'd love to hear what is on your mind and give you my perspective as well as the data that I have right in front of me. Now, as you can tell, I have a busy information-packed podcast for you today. So let's get right to our first caller at 888-99-CHART. Hi, Justin. I'm 72 years old, and I've bought uh, in my IRAs uh, dividend stocks. And I'm having the dividends as they roll in go towards cash because I'm in the RMD stage. And I was thinking that rather than have the stock accounts increase by purchasing more stock with the dividends, just to have them go to cash so that uh, uh, the money would be there for RMDs. 
I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Love the show. Listen to you all the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think that's a good strategy. That's the strategy that I deploy, that we deploy at KPP Financial. We have our clients' dividends paid into cash in the account, going in the money market, as opposed to investing those into those dividends into the stock that paid it. Why? Because we like to be more strategic with how we're deploying that capital. You're just willy-nilly buying it at the price that you happen to receive the cash for the dividend uh, in the account, right? The cash dividend in the account, you're going to buy it at whatever price the prevailing price is for the stock on that particular day, which it may be overbought. might not be the best time to buy it. I'd rather deploy that capital via, uh, you know, when it was stock market pulls back, when a particular position pulls back, et cetera. We want to buy a new position potentially. So I definitely like that strategy. Now for you as an RMD uh, withdrawler, you are going to need cash regularly. So there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, you know, then you don't have to worry about selling positions. So I think it's fine to take dividends as cash. Nothing wrong with that. You're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. I think you, I think most people are aware of the calendar. We are headed full bore into the holiday season. And the final quarter of the year will go by fast. And the need to stay vigilant in this volatile time is never more important. So I am here to help you navigate these waters. Your participation is an important part of the mix. I'd love to hear from you at 888-99-CHART. You are listening to Invest Talk. What a difference a year makes. A pandemic, financial shutdown, and market volatility. You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein is here now taking your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. And my focus point today concerns the state of the jobs market. And data shows that private payroll growth slowed in the month of October. So we're going to look at that as well as preview the jobs number from the government that comes out tomorrow, right? Tomorrow is the first Friday of the month. And that's when you get the government giving a report. And we'll see how different that is from the ADP numbers, which came out yesterday. However, I want to review that and give you kind of a sense of where the jobs market is headed. Also, the CARES Act allows individuals to withdraw up to $100,000 from IRAs, 401ks, and pay that money back over three years without penalty. So we're going to look at that. How many people have taken withdrawals? How common has it been? And what should we expect for policy going forward as the pandemic continues on? Also, are we in a bubble? What are the factors uh, of that? And what checkboxes are currently checked in today's market? And lastly, what type of trends have the pandemic has the pandemic created when it comes to consumer behavior and as well as company valuations? So we're going to review that and what that means for the investment landscape as well. Now let's jump back into our Invest Talk Voice Bank question that came in earlier on 888.99 chart. Hi, Justin and Steve. I love your show. I've been listening a lot and learning a lot. I um, wanted to get your insight on ticker symbol Thomas Roger Peter. 
That's for TC Energy. I recently bought into the company and looking for medium to long-term hold. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. I look forward to hearing you on the show. All right, looking at TC Energy, they operate energy infrastructure company uh, consisting of pipeline and power generation assets in Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. It has a network of pipelines consisting of over 62,000 kilometers of natural gas pipeline along the Keystone Pipeline system. It also has owns and has interest in 11 power generation facilities across the United States. So partially a utility company, but partially or mainly a natural gas transportation company in relation to the Keystone Pipeline. That's the issue here. And I think a Biden administration is not going to be good for that. That's a contentious pipeline when it comes to environmentalists. And while Trump has allowed that to kind of move along, the market is not reacting too well to this Biden win when it comes to TC Energy. Now, if you're looking at the fundamentals of the business here, they have a lot of debt, and that's the issue. $37 billion in debt and about $37 billion market cap. Let me look at their their cash flows because I really want to know how the lower energy price market has impacted their business overall. And now they, they are consistently negative free cash flow, very, very capital intensive business operating cash flow is always sorry capital spending is always in the billions for the past decade last 12 months eight billion dollars in capital spending so a lot of money being deployed to maintain and build pipelines so i don't like the chart i don't like the environments from a regulatory standpoint and i don't think it's cheap enough to be honest with you i really don't uh it's not expensive I just don't like it over. I think there's much better opportunities in the energy space and even in the pipeline space. We have one that we recently bought for clients that we really like that we think is much better than this. So I'm going to pass on TRP. Now we're headed into the break, but let me remind you that here on Invest Talk and on my company, KPP Financial, we operate with the philosophy of independent thinking and shared success, meaning, meaning we invest right alongside our clients using parallel investing. And I'd love to hear from you, whatever is on your mind. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Please tell your friends and family members that they can download our weekday podcast for free anytime at investtalk.com or iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And when you download and listen, please be sure to rate our podcasts. Our Anytime listener line is open, and Steve and Justin are taking your calls now. 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today concerns the ADP payroll number that came out yesterday. Now, they publish this in conjunction with Moody's Analytics, comes out every Wednesday before the official Friday jobs report. And now you have to have a caveat here because the numbers have varied widely since the beginning of the pandemic. Just the process of, of how these vote, how these jobs, excuse me, are tracked uh, by bar- various sources as well as the government, right? The government has their own process as well. And uh, there, there's, there's updates and, and uh, recalculations that they report for previous months, et cetera. But the recent report 
of private job creation showed a pretty sharp deceleration in October. Certainly wasn't negative, but they reported 365,000 jobs for the month of October. The Dow Jones average economist survey was 600,000. So almost missed it by half, I call it 40% or so. And the good news was that almost every industry and size added jobs, right, from large to small. So that was a good thing. Now tomorrow, the government report is expected to show a 530,000 increase in job creation and the unemployment rate to drop to 7.7%, a couple of percentage points from the month of September. However, that would total about 12 million jobs, a little more than half of the 22 million that were lost in the first two months of the pandemic. So we're still clawing those back and that is a worry here. And this goes back to stimulus, the lack of stimulus. The fact that Congress could not get a stimulus package passed before the election means that, guess what? There's unlikely to be a stimulus package passed until the inauguration day or after in January. Right, because look what's happening now. There's probably going to be a lot of legal cases, a lot of inf- a lot of fighting for just the presidency itself between now and I believe sometime in mid-December when the electoral college casts their votes. Right, once that's done, then I think it'll be over with, and then it'll be turning to policy and how to get a stimulus package passed. And so this is a direct result, in my mind of a lack of stimulus out of Washington. And so you should probably expect this. More and more disappointment on the economic front for the expectation of numbers and what actually comes out. Because guess what? We need stimulus. Now we have a sector spotlight interview coming up at the bottom of the hour, but now I think we can fit another caller question here. It's a live caller from Mike in Toronto. He wants to talk about options. Thanks a lot for uh, taking my call, and thanks a lot for what you guys do. It's uh, it's, it's extremely extremely helpful and uh, well done. Uh, my question the words, relates Mike. to options. Sorry, my question relates okay. to options. I trade options. And I saw a great chart, uh, Penske, P-A-G, and I was looking to trade it, but then I saw the volume. Do you look Mm -hmm. at volume when it comes to option trading? And if so, is there a minimum uh, uh, volume that you would consider before placing an option trade? Thank you. Are you talking about open interest or volume on the particular stock? Well, volume on the particular stock itself. Uh, normally, I would look at something at least around 800,000. Of course, I'm also looking uh-huh. at the uh, open interest to make sure that there's enough uh, interest. Uh, but mm-hmm. when I saw the average volume here at around 300, 400,000, um, I just thought, you know, that's just way too low. It, there's not enough liquidity. What are your thoughts? Well, if you're trading options, what the ultimate volume is on the stock matters far less than 
the open interest on the particular strike and, and expiration that you're looking at for that particular name, right? Even though there's certainly a strong correlation between open interest and the actual volume on the particular stock. So there's definitely a correlation there, but it's not always one for one. So uh, it's the, the volume on the stock is a factor, but only in the sense that it feeds into the open interest on the particular stock, especially, once again, if you're only trading options. You know, and you're an individual trader, so you don't need a volume to get into a stock. We are an institution, right? We, if we go buy a particular position, oftentimes we're buying figures or more in notional value of a particular position, and that can mean pretty high volume. And if we're trading in a, a low volume name, that can push the stock price, which we don't really want to do. Uh, and so, for us, it's a consideration, but for you as an individual, I'm assuming you're not trading $100 million plus, uh, so that's, for you, I don't think it should be really an issue as long as the open interest is there. Thanks for the call, Mike. Always a great question. Volume is certainly a factor. Certainly a factor, especially uh, in small, very small names. If you're an individual trader. Institutions like us, you know, they need to be at least medium size for us to take a position. Now, on the next Invest Talk, this story, remote work practices may forever change the way U.S. states tax wage income. Can a virtual worker be taxed in a state where they don't live? No legislator, court, or tax expert today can answer that question. And Steve will tackle that story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, and I'm ready to take your question live at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. 
As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99Chart. Welcome back. And now we're going to pivot to our Invest Talk Sector Spotlight series. And this week, we are going to be interviewing Jason Lepore from Hunker.com, which is a digital media company in the home space. Uh, I, he is the GM and the VP. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great to have you here. Now, your space has been especially interesting post-pandemic. Consumer behavior has changed towards spending on their home a little bit more. Right, since they're spending more time in their home, and how how have you seen your interest in your content shift post pandemic? Has there been higher traffic, more about home office concepts, workout concepts, etc.? Where have you seen higher interest? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question and a really good point. I know I myself, I'm sitting in a home office right now, and both my wife and I, over the last six to eight months or so, have been looking around saying hey, we're spending a lot more time here. There's actually a lot of things we should make better. So we're not the only people thinking that. We've seen on Hunker a really big uptick in, in just overall traffic since around March and April. That's tapered, tapered off a bit since back to school and uh, a bunch of people feeling like there's a little bit more normalcy in their lives. But in terms of where we've seen big, big areas of interest on the site. It's been exactly what you said. Home office, cleaning was a really, really, really big uh, topic for us, especially in March and April when things were first happening. Uh, and a little bit on just general wellness, mental, mental health, how to style for mental health, et cetera, just with people spending so much time in their homes, that's, that's become a focus of concern for them as well. So declutter, feng, feng shui, et cetera? A little bit of everything. Yeah, it's it's a lot of looking around and wanting to make things better where you're spending uh, now almost your entire day. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, 
Retailers have also had to shift their strategy more to online content, online marketing, online sales. Do you work with any brands that, uh, that, that have approached you or have you worked in the past? And how do you see your content blending with the retailer's ultimate strategy of driving those digital st- sales, especially in an industry that typically is more brick and mortar focused, right? People want to go into stores and see what they're buying and see the size and shape and feel, et cetera. And that's certainly shifted online. So how are you working with brands? Yeah, so that's, that's another good question. We've certainly seen an acceleration of just digital purchase in the home space. I, I can't say one way or the other if this is here to stay, but we've, it certainly seems to have accelerated what was already uh, a trend. We do work with a handful of really large retailers. We've done work in the past with, with Walmart, the Home Depot, et cetera. One of the things we talk a lot about uh, on the site as it relates to how we want to approach our audience is everything that we produce from a content perspective, we want to be actionable. So if someone comes to our site and they want help uh, around, hey, I, I really want to style my living room modern farmhouse, or I'm seeing this trend a lot online. How do I make this my own in my home? Or even something like, hey, I've got a leaky pipe and I've got to fix it. We talk a lot about wanting to own that entire consumer journey from solving a problem to taking action. And so really where we come in for a lot of our partners is creating content that's exactly that, actionable. So we have a whole bunch of editorial franchises that retailers can come in and sponsor, whether that's something like Hunker Recommends, where we're highlighting our favorite products, or something like Shop the Room, where we style out a room and make sure that we have links to everything that we've styled directly to purchase. Or partners can work with us on a larger custom program if, if they want to highlight a renovation or a seasonal promotion of theirs. We exist in a space that allows us to create uh, content specifically to cater to their needs. And a lot of what we do on site is just contextually relevant, for lack of a better term. So we reach about 15 million people every month. The majority of people who come to our site are getting there through Google. You never lie to your search bar. So we know that the vast majority of our audience is ready to take action on whatever it is that they're, they happen to be searching for. And from an advertiser's perspective, if, if you're a marketer, you want to reach the right person at the right time. At the right time. So that's, that's how we bridge the gap for them. So one, one thing we did a lot of in 2019 that we've done a little less of this year that was a, a big launch for us is uh, our hunker house. We have a physical space in Venice, California, that really serves as a content studio and influencer space. And so in a lot of conversations we've had with advertisers in the past is we can make it really easy from a cost standpoint uh, and a production standpoint to produce whatever type of content they're looking to produce because we don't have to go find uh, a physical space to do a renovation. We don't have to go find a physical space to style a living room or a bedroom or a kitchen. All of that exists in the hunker house that's located in Venice. Now, obviously we do a little bit less of that now with the pandemic. We're not asking uh, our editors or our creators to go into a space where there's going to be an entire film crew. But that is one of the things we've done in the past that makes it really easy for an advertiser to know, Hey, they're going to have creative control over a space uh, in a way that's really turnkey for them when they spend their money. 
Now, now the biggest value, it seems, for you that you're giving your readers is that inspiration, right, to take action. And so how has your approach giving that value to uh, your readers evolved over the years? And uh, what is what about your approach keeps your audience engaged and coming back, right? Because that's really what it's about. It's not just about get, getting the getting them to search for something, find your find one article on your site, uh, and then you never hear from them again. You want that uh, engagement. How has that evolved over the years? And you kind of spoke to SEO and and Google and, and Facebook. Uh, how how are they involved uh, with your approach? Yeah, so that's that's another great question. So the first piece of that inspiration has has always been a key key portion to what we do, right? A lot of what we have on site is a lot of the content that we have on site has original photography. And we want people who come to this site, especially as it relates to our design titles, to get lost in photography, similar to what you would see on on a platform like Pinterest. But it's not just uh, inspiration titles on the site. Another really big chunk of our readership revolves around what we call utility topics. So these are simple DIYs you can do at home that are maintaining your space, whether it's leaky pipe, installing a new shower head, uh, maybe wallpapering, etc. And so what we've always talked about in terms of providing value to a reader is making sure that we're uh, helpful to whatever it is that they've searched for and landed on our site for. If what we've created and put on site isn't helpful, we know that they're not coming back. So everything that we write, we want to make sure that A, it's easy to read, helpful to the reader, and B, that there's an, a natural exit point for them. Right? We don't want them to search for something, land on our site, and end up going backwards. We actually want them to either go deeper into the site or to a purchase because we've told them exactly what they need for either a DIY project that we're writing about or because we've recommended a piece of furniture that they love and they need to have in their space. I noticed a little bit with your site that you kind of had those recommendations. And to me, that, that kind of recommending, recommending specific uh, articles uh, and content on your site when you're already on a different um, uh, piece of content, to me that echoes kind of what Google does with YouTube, uh, Facebook, et cetera. And 55% of ad spending online goes to those two companies, Google and Facebook. And that is obviously a problem for consumers and businesses because they control so much of what happens online. So do you think there will be regulations that may, A, fragment the industry and maybe return bargaining power to the, to the ad space buyers? Uh, and top of that, would you think that algorithm that you guys, you know, similar to what you guys use, do you think that will change as well? Yeah, so I really wish I had a crystal ball for you here. I really wish that I could predict uh, and say with certainty that I knew what the government was going to do as it relates to Google and Facebook. I think a lot of people would like to know the answer to that question. I worry, me personally, I worry a little bit more about uh, how information gets disseminated on a place like Facebook than I worry about where they're at, where digital ad spending goes. To your mm -hmm. point, it's a very, very, very large number that goes to Google and Facebook. But on the flip side of that, I would argue that a place like Instagram has made it really easy for small companies to find consumers that they never otherwise would have found. At the end of the day, it's incumbent upon 
businesses like mine to provide a value proposition to advertisers outside of scale. I know that if I go have a conversation with someone like Target and I'm trying to sell them on scale, Google and Facebook are always going to be bigger for that. But I can certainly sell an advertiser on relevancy and reaching the right people at the right moment when they're interested in making a purchase. And that's mm-hmm. key from a, from a value prop to an advertiser, at least from my point of view. The other thing that I would, I would mention, because I think this is hugely in line with, with what you were just talking about in terms of regulation as it relates to digital ad spend, in California, we just, po- we just passed Prop 24. And that's another big privacy bill uh, that's a follow-up to one from, I believe, last year. And what you're seeing with, uh, with a bill like that is there's a huge momentum swing where consumers want to protect all of their first-party data, understandably so. That's really going to dramatically shift how marketers spend their money online because a lot of the ways that they're able to spend their money today they're not going to be able to spend money in that way over the next couple of years. And what, what I think you'll see, this would be my prediction, is a big shift in dollars back to publications that have a lot of contextual data, meaning large audiences that come from search where they can point to the title and say, this person is reading about home content or they're reading about finance content, et cetera, or just the places where there's a ton of first-party data that a marketer can leverage directly from the person they're buying from which again goes all the way right back to Google and Facebook because they have so much of that data, Facebook in particular. So I know that was yeah, probably a tangential, but relevant. You talked a little bit about that Prop 24, which I think will be important. And that kind of goes into my final question, which is about the digital media realm and how it's really been transformed over the past decade, right? From an ad-driven model, even though ads are still a big part of uh, the industry, so many more websites are subscription based right they've been they've successfully moved to the subscription model in many instances so the question is what is hunker's business model and what models do you see being successful going forward in the digital media space especially in in a reaction to prop 24 uh, passing and something that will likely be put through nationally probably in the next four or five years Yeah, so I don't think advertising is going away anytime soon. As it relates to Hunker, when when we're talking about our business and where we want to go over the next two, three, four years, advertising is still going to be over half of where I expect our revenue to come from. I do expect the advertising dollars to shift. It's not going to be just display ads that people are buying from us. It's going to be a mix of display advertising, custom content, working with us and influencers to make sure that uh, our advertisers are showing up in places like our newsletter or Instagram or Pinterest, et cetera. So I do think advertising is going to continue to be a big piece of the business. You'll just see that spread out across a couple different, a couple different platforms and ways that, that a marketer can buy with us. Outside of that, what you'll see at least from us is a diversification of revenue by focusing on things like affiliate revenue. And so the more that we can drive our readers, and I talked about this earlier, to a shopping cart, and for us right now, that means somebody else's shopping cart. The more that we can do that, the more that, A, we know we're doing a really good job answering whatever it is they came to us for to begin with, 
and B, creating a better relationship for partners that we want to be advertising with us to begin with. If I can go have a conversation with someone and say, hey, look, anytime we write about IKEA, they end up going to your site, that really makes the advertising conversation easier. So for us, it'll be a mix of advertising. It'll be a little bit of affiliate revenue, which I expect to grow over the next couple of years. And then really, really focusing, and this is a, a longer-term initiative for us, on our brand, our franchises, and our IP. I think in the digital media space, you hear a lot of the copycat mentality. Hey, we're all going to pivot to video. Or, hey, Instagram's working. Let's all be there. Or right now, it's TikTok. And so a lot of businesses will try and do a little bit of everything. And I've never believed that unless that, that's something you can do unless you have a lot of money and you don't care about placing bets that, that you might lose on. We do at Hunker, right? Because we're a little bit of an upstart. So we're really smart about where we want to play. And so one of the bets we'll be making long-term is continuing to grow our franchises and our brand and our IP so that we can pivot beyond just being digital media. That could mean a publication in a couple years. It could mean uh, a show on Netflix, et cetera. What I can tell you is the brands that have successfully done this already as in the digital media space are the ones that have a loyal and engaged audience. Without that, you're not going to be able to pivot to anything. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's by always, far the most important uh, aspect of anything that's uh, content-driven is uh, to make sure the content is, is engaging, uh, especially in today's world where there's so many you're, – you're, you have a lot of competition for eyeballs and attention uh, on the online realm. So uh, Hunker.com uh, obviously is doing very well in, in creating that engagement and uh, Jason – I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you giving us insights into the digital media and home goods space post-pandemic. And uh, I wish you a lot of luck. Once again, everyone, this this was Jason Lepore. He's the VP and GM of Hunker.com. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for taking the time. Have a good one. Great interview. And we are headed into our final break. We will get one more caller question in after the break and as get to some of my comments as well coming up here on Invest Talk. Look at the calendar. We are into November and on our way to Thanksgiving and then Christmas. Of course, the holidays may look a little different this year. But now, you've got finance and investment questions. Steve and Justin welcome your calls. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hello, Justin and Steve. This is Jay calling from Chicago. I have a question regarding Visa, ticker symbol V as in Victor. I uh, would like to know what would be a good point to start uh, investing on this stock. I've been Following the market uh, this weekend, it's been a pretty bit up. It's up now during the uncertainty of the presidency still, but it uh, would be great to know your opinion on what would be a good number to start jumping in at Visa. Thank you again, and appreciate it. Bye. Are you looking at Visa? I'm going to tell you what they do. Been a secular grower for a dec- you know, multiple decades now. And the big, my big problem with Visa is a recent Justice Department uh, lawsuit that is suing Visa to block their acquisition of Plaid. And what Plaid is, is it is a software company that is the backbone of a competitor to the Visa debit network. 
and the MasterCard debit network, which together combines make about 95% of the debit market. And it's the backbone to Venmo. Things like Venmo and multiple ways that people transfer money digitally. And I think that is the future. And so I see a longer term. Now, headway, even though things are moving digital, I think people are going to get more and more comfortable transacting on their phone. Think of Apple Pay, right? And the way that's being used, moving cash on your, on your iPhone, for example. And so I actually don't like the Visa and MasterCard at these prices. They're very expensive names. And there's that premium built into them that their network is so solid and it cannot be penetrated because it hasn't for multiple decades. But honestly, I think there's a lot of competition coming for this space one actually passing on Visa. Let's go to Vitaly in Atlanta. Wants to look at Wells Fargo. Yes, hi. Uh, hi, Justin. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, sure. I don't have enough uh, banking institutions in my portfolio. I was looking to possibly add Wells Fargo. Um, it's been dropping for quite some time, so I'm guessing it's like a falling knife and you wouldn't recommend it, but I just wanted to see if there was a price point that you do like it at uh, for a long term uh, to add it to my portfolio and hold it for many years. Now, here's a question. Why do you need banking in your portfolio? Um, well, to stay diversified. Well, that's one argument, uh, but I'm going to argue that you don't need banking, uh, especially in this environment, especially when we know that interest rates are going to be depressed for an extended period of time due to the Fed needing to keep uh, interest rates down and, and probably doing yield curve control and making it a tough environment for banks to operate in. Now, should you have financial services, I think is a better question. And I think there are much better areas of financial services. Talk about brokerage services, talking about maybe investment banks, not commercial banks like this, maybe something like an insurance company, right? So areas of the financial service sector that are not banks, I think that is a much better place to be adding to your portfolio and getting broader diversification because banks not only are the fintech companies coming after their business right and trying to usurp their power as these large banks so you know lending and 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 custodying assets right think of marcus by goldman sachs for example um other fintechs like a paypal where you can do more on those apps, similar to a normal commercial bank. And so I think there's not only from a regulatory standpoint, from an interest rate standpoint, where they're mainly making that spread, right? Borrowing short, lending long. That's typically how banks make most of their money. And in a low interest rate environment, that's very hard to do. So I, I'm just not a fan of the banks, uh, to be honest with you. It's just not a great time. Uh, if interest rates were consider rising steadily, I would say, okay, and but they're not. And Wells Fargo is not my favorite at all. They're still struggling from their, their, uh, their crisis and their, their issues with regulators. You know, I like a lot of the other big banks first, but frankly, just not a fan of the banks, rather own other parts of the financial service space. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. I'll return on Monday. Steve Pease will be here tomorrow with highlights from the KPP Premium Newsletter. 
And in the meantime, please remember to tell your friends and family members that they can choose from over 100 archived Invest Talk podcasts for free download over at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And as always, you can listen live on investtalk.com, streaming every weekday, 4 to 5 Pacific time. Just click on the Listen Live button. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. And they thank you for listening and welcome your comments or questions on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.